Here is a box, a musical box, wound up and ready to play. But this box can hide a secret inside. Can you guess what is in it today? My name is Kerry William Purcell. Welcome to episode 25 of The Last Outpost. In the early 2000s, I went through a spell of writing lots of book reviews, mainly of art, design and photography books. Uh, If I'm honest, I don't think I was writing the reviews because I had a great love of reviewing or of the books I was reviewing. In many ways, I was driven by a need to write, a sort of vain desire to see my name in print, the money it paid, which wasn't much, and that I had nothing better to do. Looking back now, I don't remember most of the books I reviewed, but one title does stick out. That is Andy Martin and Ian McMillan's Ideas Have Legs, which was published, I think, in 2006 by Fuel. And it was a collaborative book with Andy providing the images and Ian the words. It was a real creative union, a real exploration of word and image and what they could do together. For me, I think it was possibly one of the best books I reviewed during that period, And this episode's guest is one half of that partnership. As you will hear in our chat, I talked to Andy about his early work experiences, working at NME, the commercial pressures of being an illustrator, and his working relationship with Ian. Andy started our conversation by talking about what were the creative influences on him as a child and what turned him on to the visual world. Well, it was a long, slow process, I guess. Started quite early on. And my father, both my parents were quite creative, and my father was like, he would make images for himself, so there was always image-making around the house when I was really small. What did your dad do? For a living, he worked in textiles, um, right. technical side of te- textiles, but he was also pretty handy with paint and a brush, you know, and he just for his own enjoyment, really. And he could just summon things. I'd say, do me a so-so, and he'd just render one out, you know, which is a great thing to see when you're about five. So a lot of it went in that way, I think. I don't know what your background is. I mean, my background, I'm from uh, Grinsby originally. And, um, well, Cleethorpes, but I always know, often people don't know where Cleethorpes is. People don't know where Cleethorpes is often when I say Cleethorpes. So I say Grinsby because they think fish. So, um, but um, it's interesting. I grew up there not far from the docks and most of my family worked in the fishing industry. I had a, a couple of relatives who would be doing like creative work. Like, well, they wouldn't think of it as creative work. They would just make stuff. They would do stuff in their spare time. You know, like a sort of a natural talent. Yeah, I mean, I'm my grandparents. They were always making things. They would make things. And it was normal to make yourself something. You know, whether it be a bit of a tool for the workshop or my mum was making clothes and stuff. So the idea of making was we were brought up with that. Yeah. Where were you? F- where are you from, Andy? Well, all around really, but a lot the Midlands, 
mainly um, Derby, Derbyshire, Staffordshire, Cheshire. That, you know, we moved around quite a lot, but I settled in Derby towards the end of my home life. Right. Was that because of your family's work, or my dad was working in, in the textiles and it was moving around a lot? So yeah, he went where the work was, you know. Yeah. So was there a um, a point a, te- a sort of teacher at school or someone who uh, made you think? Oh, actually, because usually I find from working in education that. 99% of the time when someone ends up studying illustration or graphic design it's because someone was nice to them at school or someone was someone was nice to them at college and suddenly that you know there's a lot in that I mean I was I didn't decide to go to college until I was in my early to mid 20s I messed around working lots of dead end jobs and and then I had an epiphany I thought hold on why don't I go to art college you know this is what I'm supposed to be doing really so I was a late starter and I got, I jumped on the last bus really for the particular year and got into Derby College of Art on a graphics who, course. Who was, the, who was the person that made you think that? I don't know. I think it was, I'm a slow, I'm a slow learner. I, it kind of, it had been dawning on me slowly over a period. I was doing nothing. It was, you know, my life wasn't really going anywhere. And I think I just forced into an early 20s bout of, introspection and self you know what I mean you know, what's this all about and thought well what I'd really like to do would be to I didn't know I wanted to be an illustrator I didn't know I wanted to be a designer I just knew I wanted to go and be somewhere creative and then it honed down from there really over quite a period because when I left college and I, I jumped ship after the first year and came to London um, and then a series of very lucky breaks occurred. Uh, most of the things that have happened to me in my life have been someone opening a door and kicking me through it. It has to be said. <laughs> it's just, my, if I've got a skill, it's recognising an opportunity when someone, you know, opens a door. <laughs> so that's a series of events after I arrived in London. Um, very, very fortunate. I now realise it was luck rather than judgement. Uh, I ended up, I started off painting corridors in the Rainbow Theatre. Um, and that where I met there was some little workshops up at the top of the rainbow in those days and one of the girls uh, her sister worked for Felix Dennis and so I went down to see her and Felix gave me a gig which was really lucky in the time when he was just reinventing himself from a, a kind of underground publisher into a, a multi-billionaire he had a series of uh, not underground titles you know there were things like Witch Bike magazine and uh, Kung Fu Monthly magazine <laughs> but there's a lot of publishing work going through his studio and I picked up the basic studio skills there which was very handy No it's 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 interesting what you say about being kicked through a door I mean it was a similar thing with me in many ways it's um, I left school and uh, went on a YTS scheme um, and um then suddenly dawned on me after two years I thought what am I doing what's what am I doing with my life at uh, Cleethorpesborough Council and um and it was just suddenly like uh, and then it, for me it was a it was a, a girl I met someone who was going away to college and I thought oh this sounds good um what she's doing um I think I'll I think I'll have a bit of that and um you know and that was it was uh, like yourself it was sort of I mean I suppose looking back there was a, a, an element of willfulness uh, to, to do it because um, 
someone, well, my family were dead against it because um, it was basically I was giving up a paid job um, to go and do something for that. Yeah, it's funny, but different times, and you could you could roll around learning on on the job, really. And, and I don't know if that's quite so easy nowadays. Everything seems to be kind of locked down. You know, when I think of the chances we took, we took lots of chances because the bottom line was they weren't going to hang you if if, if it failed. I think there's a lot more pressure now on younger people. And I worry about them having those opportunities to just roll around and check things, try things out without actually fully committing while you work out if it's the right decision, those kind of decisions. You know, we were making those decisions all the time when we were younger. Does that make sense? It sounds like a sort of traditional apprenticeship in some ways. Like there's a, there's a sort of safety net there that you know that you're not going to be kicked off if you if because you are sort of learning and it's lucky I suppose if you meet someone like that who's willing to um, give you that type of uh, that space. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I was cocky as well, so I did a year at college and thought, right, I know enough now. I can go and, <laughs> go and make a living now, and I did. I, I jumped off the course, and I, but I was very lucky with my landing. You know, it wasn't. It could have been a disaster. I had nowhere to live. I moved to London. I was squatting in Finsbury Park. So it wasn't easy, but, you know, you get there in the end, don't you? You kind of slowly but surely pull things together. Was there a moment when you were doing that work that you suddenly thought, OK, this is it, um, I feel like I've crossed the line here now and I'm, I'm, a, I'm becoming um, not necessarily established, but it, was, it became your identity? Well, yeah, I mean, partly going to the course, the original graphics course in Derby, I've immediately felt I'd made the right choice with graphics. I didn't know. I tried to get on the fine art course. It was full. It said try graphics. So I went there because I didn't have any O-levels or A-levels. I left school with CSE geography, I think, or something, and woodwork. So uh, as soon as I got there, I thought, no, this is, the, this is where I need to be. This is exactly where all my key interests are, you know. Um, and then the two years in the studio picked up all the studio skills and then I was able to have a look around and think well actually I'd like to be making images rather than making designs magazine designs I'd, I'd like to have a go at doing some illustration so I kind of cross-faded across disciplines really I was still designing books while I was, when I was doing illustrations but then when I met the Mac it, um, it went swung over to illustration predominantly because the tools weren't there for page design at the time there was no quark or anything it was just pretty primitive on the book on the page pagination software you know so I focused on these on illustration and what did the college say or what did your family say when you said I'm just giving up I'm going down to London uh, my parents had already moved to Cardiff I was in Derby they were in Cardiff and they were going right do what you want you know have a go they were very they were good like that I think they they were worried that there wasn't a grant. I didn't get a grant, so it was quite a struggle that first year. That's one of the factors that left me to uh, maybe think about leaving. I thought, I need some money. I hadn't got any money, you know. I can't really... I can't remember the, the chronology of it now. But I remember really enjoying having a working wage when I first hit London and got that, that work. It was great. It's the, it's the scene from so many type of kitchen sink films of the lad from the north heading down to London to make his, uh, you know, life. It is. I mean, it was. And I think it was a massive exodus. All my mates 
when I started college, all my mates in Derby left Derby to go to London. So I ended up just being there. All my peer group had disappeared. And that was a factor. So I came down to follow them, really, as well. That's what people did. It was a big drift south, you know, back in the day. Yeah. You probably know that. No, I had the same experience. I remember getting on the train at Grinsby, uh, Grinsby Station and just thinking, this feels so right. It just feels so right. There wasn't any homesickness or I just thought, this feels right now. And uh, there was that type of sense of actually going out there into the world type of thing at that age when I was... Um, I mean, like you, I was slightly older as well. I was uh, you know, 20 when I went away to college. But um, So was there a project uh, in London... Um, that you look back on now and you think, you know, that um, that sort of really um, became significant for you in some way? Well, I, I was a big fan of those days. You were a fan of the NME. You read the NME and it was my kind of Bible, really. So the idea of getting some work in the NME was a... Was a I wanted to get an illustration in the NME. That was the first step. And I happened to meet the girl who was... Caramel Crunch, who was the art director at the time, and I got a chance to do some stuff for their letters page, which was Gas Bag, which was an open brief every week. So I did a few of those. And then ended up going in to help out there, which she wanted help with the layout and stuff. So I did a bit of that. And then I got connected with the enemy that way, really, and then they offered me the gig. And they offered me the gig two or three times, and I was building my illustration work, and I didn't really want to give it up. And in the end, I just thought, it's such an old ambition, it'd be silly not to have had a crack at it, you know. So I spent three years there at art. So when was this? That was uh, eight, probably 81 to 84. can't remember dates very good now. What was it like working at the NME? It was good. It was, uh, it was a funny period, really, because it had just passed its hey, absolute heyday, you know, the 76, 77, 78. It was really major. Yeah. And it was... I mean, the... the the order of popular music was changing anyway and under the editorship of Neil Spencer when I was there he was trying to shift the emphasis away from just kind of uh, just music he wanted to broaden it out and have you know more a cultural more the cultural base for the editorial so it was quite an interesting time and uh, there was lots of things going on like little cassettes and special projects going on all the time so from a design point of view it was, it was a gift really you know the drudgery of the weekly paper was a, a pain, to be honest. I mean, it involved things like filling in the black squares with the crossword grid with a repeatograph. That was <laughs> that was Tuesday morning's job. <laughs> and uh, there was no there, there was no money there. You know, the IPC owned it. We weren't funding it really, so everything had to be was a bit handmade. It was just really odd for saying it was a major, best-selling music paper. You know, it's pretty hand to mouth. Did you have any encounters with any um, well-known artists? Well, they stayed. I had a, my. I was a backroom boy. Really, we were cocooned away in this little bunker. So, I mean, people used to pop in now and again. Um, not many, actually. No, it was. It was. I think it was a time when the publicists were starting to rule the world. Right. There were a few people used to pop in. I'm not going to mention any names because there were some people. Well, there were people on the way out, on the way down, who were coming around trying to kind of get favours, I suppose. I don't know. They would would go in and lock themselves in the office with Neil and come out later. I don't know what was going down there. Right. (laughs) All that sort of stuff goes on. But no, it was... I mean, it was a bunch of dedicated people putting a newspaper together on a weekly basis. That's what it was like in there with some great writers. Why did you leave? 
Uh, I wanted to, again, I've done, I, it was the, it's every week, you know, it's three years you've done it, you know what's coming up. And uh, I wanted to just start a, a design studio and do my own thing. I had ideas. I was going to Italy quite a lot in those days. So I was kind of picking up other ideas. And I went and started the studio, uh, which coincided with me bumping into the Apple Mac, which was a real game changer. That's when uh, all thoughts of design kind of withered and I've just started focusing on the on the illustration work with a very early Mac. I am one of the first people in the UK to start using it for illustration. There's only a handful of people just doing bits and bobs and, you know, it was a very crude tool in those days, but you could make it work for you. You know, pixelated. Yeah. Where was your studio based? I had a studio in uh, up at the top of Caledonian Road then, in an old bus factory. I had several, I've had lots of studios been all over the place. I ended up working in the end in London, because I moved out of London 10 years ago. I was working from home in the end, but I'd worked all over. But London rents are just ludicrous, as you know. Yeah. So you're better off. If you tried to get a studio in London now, <clears throat> I could probably only afford Kent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That stuff of uh, it makes me think when you get these airports calling themselves London Luton. And uh, <laughs> <Every> international. <laughs> <laughs> so um did you have staff working for you or I mean I know illustrators often just work on their own. As an illustrator I always worked so by myself. When I was doing design work, if there was you know, I'd done some quite big book projects and we'd have people in to help with that. Um, but I'm I'm a bit of an what's what's the word autocrat. I'm happier right. when I'm working by myself really, and illustration is great for that. You know, I mean it is a collaborative job. I do collaborate all the time with art directors and on the, on the magazine work, and I love collaborating anyway. I just think two heads are better than one. Uh, you know, I work with Ian McMillan. We've collaborated on quite a few projects now, and it's a joy, real joy. So what type of work were you doing when you had your studio in London? I mean, was it, um, was it mainly editorial or was it, uh, were you doing a mixture of, of, of projects or...? Yeah, mixture of projects because towards the end of that, the illustration started. So on the one hand, I'd be doing an illustration for an early copy of Blueprint magazine. Remember when Blueprint started? Yeah, yeah. Um, and then the next day, there'd be some kind of brewer decided to launch a lagered ale. So we did a little handbook for that with Neil Spencer trying to make it look kind of streetwise so there's little commercial projects flying around um, did a few books there did a, a book on skinheads with Nick Knight fresh out of college Nick Knight had these oh, oh gosh I know that book yeah I didn't know he did that yeah he was uh, he had this great portfolio of skinhead photographs yeah, yeah I know it I know the book yeah but I did the design for that around that time um yeah, it was a bit... Oh, a jazz book. What was the... Oh, I did... I worked with Roy Carr, who sadly just passed a couple of weeks ago. Roy, I worked with at the NME. He was their special projects editor. He was the guy behind the cassette, enemy cassettes, basically. And most yeah, yeah. of the fun that was going on, he was... You know, he, was, he always had a project on. So I did a book with him uh, for Fabers called The Hip, which was to kind of look at uh, hipsters through the years. But this was about 1984, 85... And we won a book award at Bologna Book Fair with that, as I remember. So it was it was a lovely project. I mean, Roy had an amazing collection of jazz memorabilia. He had everything. He had Charlie Parker signed photographs. He had match books from all the jazz clubs, you know, east and west coast. It was, he just turned up in the studio with these boxes full of amazing visual material. And we just put the book together with that. It was a, it was a real dream. 
couldn't do a book now. I don't know how to work with software. <laughs> this was all just cut and paste and, you know, physically cut out and old paste up. Are you the type of illustrator that basically you have your personal work and then you have your professional work, or is it all just work? Well, it's an interesting point because I was thinking this. Because a lot of the work I do has to be quite mainstream because um, art directors. I'm working predominantly in America, so I do some stuff in the UK, but it's mostly US now. And they're very, very particular about how their readers can understand the work. You can't get too clever or too cryptic. They want it to be instantly recognisable, what, you know, what the image is trying to represent. So within those constraints, I've found a way over the years of putting my own little sort of fringe ideas in there, whether it be a kind of line quality, I've some stuff I'm looking at, I've, I'm experimenting and playing around. So there's always a way within the vehicle of the illustration you're doing to find your personal voice in there. And I look back at the, the work over the last 30 years, and it's changed quite a lot over... The basic tenets the same, because it's collage or montage. But within that, there's lots of stylistic shifts because I've kept an open mind outside of the... The, the kind of the general trends of illustration and being able to draw those images that those techniques in you know I mean I don't I haven't changed the way I work really since I started the tools have got much more sophisticated but my approach is pretty pretty, pretty stable you say you're now doing all your work in America I mean how did that come about? Well, I had done some work from... A, I can't remember how it started. I got a couple of art directors that got my details and used to use them regularly. Discover magazine, Disney magazine. Uh, and, but then I signed up with an agency, an illustration agency called Heart, Heart Agency, way back when they started. And, uh, and I had a brief period out when I experimented with some digital film stuff and then went back with them. And I've been there, oh, God knows how many years, 12, something like that. And they've got an uh, office in London and one in New York, so um, it's been a lot of uh, US clients, regular clients, for a while now. It's a different way of working for American people than it is for English people. They're very, um, they're very driven, and I don't know. There's a different, just a different approach. In, in the UK, you can you can send a rough in to a client, and they go, "Yeah, that's fine, thank you." That really never happens in America. <laughs> There's always something come back, tweak. You know, they're on it all the time. They really, they manage a lot more heavy management, really, of a project. And how do you find that? Well, at first, it was quite difficult because it felt they were very demanding. But after a while, you, if you come to accept that and expect it, then it's actually the work is really improved through that process. It ain't over till it's over, and you've, you've taken it on, you're with it till the end. It's no good kicking and fighting that. <laughs> Accept it, and then you can actually start enjoying the process. The only trouble is they, they call me at, like, 8.30 when I'm just about to want my dinner, you know. <laughs> that's the downside. But that's a really healthy attitude to take, actually, because um, my own experience with... Um, I write something... If it gets sent back to me for edits, I can barely bring myself to look at it. Um, I can barely, I mean, uh, when and also when I've had proofs sent to me, I mean, you know, uh, to tell the truth, I, I don't read them. I just send them back. <laughs> and it's, it's just, I don't know what it is. I, I, once I've done something, I've done something, and it, it, that's it. It just, you know... Um, 
it's I don't know what it is. Well, you're dealing with you're probably dealing more directly with the person who's got the authority to okay the project. Yeah. When you're working with design, there can be any number of people. You know, you can be dealing with someone who you think's got the authority because this is the person that's briefed you, gone through all the options, you've presented the roughs to them, they've come back with changes two or three times, and then they'll go, right, I'm going to show the editor now. And you go, oh, Lord, I have to go up the corridor for approval. So you never know. You know, you've just got to keep a really open mind because it seems like anyone can jump in at any time and go, I want that bit changed. Yeah, I think I have issues with authority. <laughs> yeah, well, I did. I still do to a degree. Uh, yeah, I know that one. That's great. But yeah, sometimes you're the one who loses because you're just going to wind yourself up so often, you might as well learn to accept it. Yeah, I suppose it depends on how big the, the gig is and whether you think, oh, fuck it, I can't not do this. Um, but uh, no, but it's good. It's a good, I mean, I've worked with American editors and um, yeah, you're right. And, uh, you're right. Uh, well, they are, uh, you get the same sense with your work that they're kind of on it and they'll manage you to, to the end. Oh yeah, no, definitely, definitely. And, um, and you know, I, you know, even so I say I'd, I, I can't be bothered, um, which I can't a lot of the time. Um I tend to have a bit of a wandering mind, so I tend to think, okay, right, I've done that. What else can I do now? Um, but um, yeah, they do. They go back over it with a uh, fine tooth comb and top of, uh, um, you know, get back to me and make me do uh, rewrites and all the rest of it. How did you start working with Ian McMillan? Well, when I was at the NME, he was filing small reviews. He was at what was known as a stringer, so he'd go, he'd be up in Barnsley and he'd go to any northern gigs and do little reviews of them. So we used to get those in from all over the, the gig network of the country. And, and then, I don't know how... I think it was through Andy Gill, who was uh, another writer on the paper, uh, knew Ian could do other stuff because he was getting into his performance poetry at the time so he wrote these little really funny little pieces like mini novels condensed mini novels and they were just like shorthand notes of a mini novel <laughs> really funny and I stuck one in the notebook and thought I'd like that I'm going to like to work with this guy one day and 17 years later I actually found tracked him down got in touch with him and said do you want to meet up and he came he was in London he came over to my studio and we just kind of clicked straight away um and here we are, you know, we were two short films, a book and an Instagram project later. It seems mad. It's been good. What's the Instagram project? Well, it's, uh, we, we decided to, we did a book, as you know, because you did a, a great yeah, review of that. Thank you in retrospect for that review. Right. That was very nice. Because that book was launched with no, no publicity. There was no trumpeting. It just went out and found its own way in the world. And luckily it found you and it was a great review. Um, after that, we did two short films because I was playing around with early digital animation. Um, so Ian did two pieces for that, for, for those. We made two short films. And then we it kind of, we left it alone for a bit and got, well, I moved down here and sort of did less work for a time. 
well, I kind of rebuilt the wreck we'd bought by mistake. Um, and then we got back in touch and thought, how about just it doesn't have to be a book because we've got enough material for three more books if we wanted to. We thought, well, let's just do something online. So we just done this Instagram project where every couple of days, every week, we Ian sends I either I send some images to trigger him or he sends some words to trigger me, short pieces, and then we tweet them. Um, but it's basically an Instagram project. But because I then retweet automatically from the Instagram project and I tag Ian on there, it gets kind of quite a lot of people notice it there. Not many people notice it on Instagram because we don't really trumpet it. It's more it's become more of a repository for the for the material. Twitter's where it's really happening. Are you seeing a life beyond Instagram for this or Yeah, well, I mean we've been doing it for I think eighteen months now and there's a lot of material on there and I mean some of them are really uh, Ian's stuff is is very good, you know. <laughs> he does it for a living, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you send him an image think oh this will sort him this will set him off and he comes back with some notion that you just never would have thought you know what did I send him the other day I sent him a picture I found this picture I've been over to France for the week weekend a couple of weeks ago and there was a sign a jet ski a road sign with a guy on a jet ski in the style of road, French road signs you know the blue board oh yeah oh, I saw that. I saw that it's a really beautiful image and I sent him that and he goes he comes back with here is the birth of hip-hop in street sign form. I think it's fairly self-explanatory. Obviously, redacted represents redacted, and redacted represents redacted. <laughs> <laughs> Stuff like that. It's just a joy, you know. Works better when you've got the visual in front of you, obviously. Uh, no, I've seen it. I, I, I know that. It's, um, I mean, he's a bit of a phenomenon, I think, really. He just... he. Um, I really admire him, but partly because he seems to live a relative... Well, he's he's connected to a lot of people. He does a lot of work. He's obviously stuff on the BBC. But he also seems to live a fairly normal life. Yes, I know. He, I mean, he just go home. He goes home most... You know, I don't know how he does it. His agent said he'll travel the le- length of breadth of the country and get paid in sandwiches. But he'll get home, yes. you know. He's driven. He's amazing. I know, and he does these. He goes to like village halls and works. Does some musical um, performances with bands, and uh, and actually goes to a village hall where there's literally like ten people there, um, and he'll do his performance and then go home. and And I'm just in awe of the guy when when I see him do doing that type of work and travelling around. When you know he could probably call it happily just sit at home and just write and do his BBC stuff, and uh, but he doesn't. He uh, and he's always in Cleethorpes as well, which warms my heart when I see him. When I see him, pictures of him walking down uh, the the fitties by the caravan park. Yeah, um, yeah. Yes, yeah, so I did a performance with him. We did a presentation at DNAD, and uh, it was amazing. I went in the room with him first before the audience arrived, and he he just walked into the room and he sort of breathed the room in as part of the kind of pre-performance thing he does. He just went. <laughs> smell the room <laughs> seize the room <laughs> and then of course you just we're, one minute you're sitting there talking to me and the next minute there's an audience in front of him and you go boom and he comes up to about four times his normal size and just does this amazing performance very good a lesson for us all so what type of projects are you working on now? well I've got the run of the mill illustration coming through I've got one to do today I think well, the next couple of days, anyway. Um, 
Yeah, it's, it's a little bit more prescriptive, this one. Some work, they'll go, get some ideas for this. And that's, that's where I have my, my fun, getting the notions and the ideas. Sometimes they come with a actually pre-prepared PDF of how they want it to look. So today's is one of those, but that's OK, I can do that. I'll, I'll get into the uh, enjoying the line quality rather than... They don't want me for my brain. They want my line quality today. <laughs> but I can live with that because it's paid work. It's frustrating. I mean, the, uh, uh, this idea that... Um, I mean, it's interesting. I was watching that Sasha Baron Cohen thing um, last night and um, about how maybe it's the case that with America... I mean, it's just massively sweeping, but maybe it's the case with American audiences... Um, you don't necessarily have to meet them halfway. You have to meet them three quarters of the way. Um, and no, no, see, this is the, this is what you kind of automatically think. You're driven to think that, but I'm not sure. I think people are more intelligent than the people give them credit for a lot of the time. Oh yeah, I'm not. I'm not saying that. I mean, it just feels. Uh, I'm not. I mean, it's a ridiculous thing to say to say. You know, to be sweeping about a whole. No, but it's a, pre- it's a it's a view that's prevalent in my work. You get it all the time. Editors come in on saying our readers won't understand that, and you think, well, try them. They might. Yeah. But they're not in the business of trying it. They're in the business of getting everything underwritten before it's gone to press. I guess. So I don't yeah, know about yeah, tying everything down. Yeah. What about uh, Cohen? I wonder how much autonomy he had with that show and. Who's he got breathing on his neck? Producers? Yeah. I, I don't know, you don't know. Because by the time he's talked about in the press here, he's the king of all he surveys, but in fact, he, there's a process that even he has to go through, I would have thought. Yeah, yeah. Did you see it? I haven't seen it. Um, I've, yeah, I watched bits of it last night, just snatches of it. I, didn't, I was doing other things, but um, yeah, I just for me, it's just uh, the sheer gall uh, of the guy to be able to sit there and uh, and do these things I just you know oh I just I can't get my head around it that's another thing isn't it that's that's there's comedy and then there's that <laughs> yeah I mean it's fearless it's just fearless and um, I I'm the, I'm the type of person who goes to a stand-up gig I get really tense and nervous because I feel like the person's gonna die um, so I get re- I really don't like stand-up gigs, and it's funny. I went to a stand-up gig with my daughter the other week, and end up actually being part of the show, which was my nightmare. It was absolutely. I was, she'd, she'd bought tickets for the front row, which she just never do, and she, you know, and I, it was Tim Key. I don't know if you know Tim Key. Oh yeah. Yeah, and I, I ended up pouring beer down his neck because um, he, wa- he wanted me to feed him beer from a can. And um, but I was just like, oh my god, this is my worst nightmare. So um, for I'm a bit like that with things like that. So when I see someone doing what he does, I it's just another universe to me. Just watching from behind the sofa. Oh god, yeah, really not good. But um, but yeah, there's that thing, isn't it, with before a lot of performers? Suddenly, occasionally, it comes home to you how much energy and, and bravery and balls it takes to get up and do... Even people who just get up and sing. I mean, that's a major thing, to be able to front a lyric up in front of a band. Yeah. You know, I've done it as a young lad with guitars. I don't think I... <laughs> I just get too nervous now. <laughs> Take some tips from Ian. Yes. Breathe the room. Yeah, breathe the room. <laughs> Thank you.
I'd like to thank Andy for taking the time out of his busy day to chat to me. I hope you enjoyed it. So, that's it for this episode. Until next time, thanks for listening. Bye. But Windy likes cider, so he has a drink. Cider is very good, but it makes people sleepy. Windy's cider is very strong cider. Windy Miller is suddenly very sleepy.